So I brought Dylan up on the stage because he's going to help me in the first part of my message, and, and he knows about this. I, I warned him beforehand. We actually talked through it, and, and he was a little nervous when I, I started talking him through it without telling him what I was doing, and he's sitting there in the house like, am I in trouble? You know, but, uh, so, but anyways, um, so I don't know about how it goes in your house, but in our house, in the Breedlove household, like, Grass mowing is a boy job, right? That's like the guys do that grass mowing, right? And so Dylan, obviously, is a young man, but he got this job probably when he was about, what, 10 or 11? He started doing that. I mean, he got the job when he was like, Dad, I can't get the mower started. You know, he couldn't just, he couldn't pull it fast enough to get the mower started. And so when we would, when we would do this with Dylan, there was really, Three ways that I can tell Dylan to mow the grass. Three ways that I can work through it. And I know some of you are thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Hebrews? Trust me, it's got everything to do with Hebrews. Okay? So, so the first way that we would do this is that I would, I would come to Dylan and I would say to Dylan, Dylan, I want you to mow the grass. Okay. Alright, so what I want you to do, you do, is go outside. I want you to make sure you get the bagger on the lawnmower. I want you to bag all of the clippings. I want you to throw them in a trash bag. Make sure they're set out by the curb. You have to weed eat. You have to clean off the steps and, and the walkways after you're done. You have to clean out the underneath side of the mower, get all the grass out of there so it doesn't get that rusted out. And you have to also make sure if there's any, if we need any more gas or whatever, I know about that as well. Do you understand? Yes. Do you have any questions? No. Okay, so go outside and mow the grass. All right, so this is what would happen. Now, in the beginning, Dylan, was this in the beginning when you were learning to mow the grass, how was this technique? It was helpful because I knew exactly what I had to do. Okay, but as you started mowing the grass more and more, how did it make you feel when I would do that technique? It seemed like there was no faith that I actually knew what I was doing. Okay. So, so I, you have to shift, you know, and so then what happens is I come to Dylan, and, I'm, and the second way that I can do it is to go to Dylan and say, hey, Dylan, uh, I'd like you to mow the grass. Okay. Okay, so what are the things that you need to think about with mowing the grass? I need to make sure that I bag all the grass, get the weeding done, sweep off the porches and stuff like that after I'm done, make sure that there's gas, and then I have to clean it out, clean out the underneath side before I put it away. Okay, and what about the rain? If, it, if the weather's going to be bad, what, am I going to accept that as an excuse for not getting it done? Not if I had a chance to do it before it started raining. Okay. <laughs> so, so this is how we did the grass a little while later. And we, we shifted, right? We start asking questions. Now, how did you feel about that when we first made that shift? When we first made the shift, it was fun. Okay, but then after a while, we keep going, and, and then what happens? It, still, it started to seem like you still don't have faith in me. Okay. And so we shifted to a third way of mowing the grass, right, uh, of instructing this. And I would say, hey, Dylan, I need you to go mow the grass. Okay. And I am confident when you mow the grass that you will remember to do everything that needs to be done to take care of the grass right and to make sure it's all happened and the house looks good, okay? Okay. Is there anything you need from me? No. Okay. So how does that way of conveying you need to mow the grass work with you? Let's me know that you know that I know how, what I'm doing and that I'll get it done right. But it still reminds you that it needs to be done, right? Yes. But shows that I have trust. All right, thanks, buddy. You can have a seat. So this is this is how we go about, you know, our chores and things like this. These different approaches to how we're we're handling this, right? 
And what I did in the last way is I, I convey to Dylan that I have confidence that he can do this task, right? And that's my goal is to try to convey to him that I know you can do this, buddy. I know that you can handle this. I know this is good to go. And yet gives him some time to give me feedback and all of these things, right? So what does this approach to Dylan with the grass mowing have to do with the book of Hebrews? The answer is simple. The author of Hebrews employs one of the techniques I just showed you in the passage of Scripture for today. This technique is a kind of rhetorical device. This technique that the author employs is a kind of rhetorical device, and it was common in ancient literature and speaking. And I'm going to point out this rhetorical device that the author uses to spur you on in your faith today as we, as we go through the book of Hebrews. Amen? Is anybody awake? Amen? Amen. Alright, so in order to better understand this rhetorical device, we need to look at the Scripture. So I want you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 9. And we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. And I want to encourage you to read along with me. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You might be reading from the King James or the New King James or the NIV. And that's okay. They're all just translations, but I like the ESV personally. So here we go. Verse 9 of Hebrews. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the, this is the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today. And this rhetorical device is present, and I'm going to tell you why it's there. Let's pray. Father God, you are the giver of life. Lord, you hold everything together by the word of your power or by the power of your word. You hold it all in your hand. And we trust you today. Lord, you tell us that your mysteries are made known, made known to us by the Holy Spirit. And so we say, Holy Spirit, come and teach us today. Instruct. Put knowledge on my lips. If I'm going to say something that's not of you, strike it from my mind. And if I'm going to forget something that is of you, Lord, bring it to my remembrance so that your people can be built up in their most holy faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. So before we get too deep into the scriptures today, before we get too deep into what this says and, and digging into the device, I, I think it's probably needed for me to explain what rhetoric is, right? Because a lot of times when we say we talk about rhetoric, at least in modern American culture, it kind of carries with it a negative connotation. Everybody's like, oh, that's just so much rhetoric. But rhetoric isn't, isn't a bad thing. Rhetoric is not a bad thing. Can it be used for bad? Absolutely. But in and of itself, rhetoric is not bad. So what is rhetoric? Rhetoric is a noun, and it is the art of effective or persuasive speaking or writing, especially the uses of figures of speech and, and other compositional techniques. 
So rhetoric is persuasive speaking or writing. And when you get down to the base sense of, of, of what rhetoric is, it's not bad in and of itself. Let me just share a story to illustrate real quick. When we were at Crossroads Fellowship, my wife and I, this church that we planted in Tennessee that you guys know about, there was uh, one of the elders' wives was concerned about the influence uh, that I had over the congregation. And she came and she was concerned. She was talking with the other elders and she was and their wives and she was saying, well, you know, Jerry says this and da, 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 da. and the people are saying, well, Jerry says and Jerry says and Jerry says and, and you know, and our pastor is really starting to persuade people and people are really starting to take what he says to heart and, the, and going with this. And so we listened and she was really kind of having this kind of mi- mindset that rhetoric was a bad thing. And there was one of our elders' wives, her name is Catherine. And Catherine never spoke. Like, she would speak, you know, outside of meetings. But inside of meetings, church business meetings, didn't matter. Catherine was just silent, you know. So you knew if Catherine ever said anything, you probably needed to listen. It was like E.F. Hutton, right? When E.F. Hutton talks, everybody listens. I don't, amen. Does anybody remember that old commercial? Okay. So when Catherine spoke, everybody would listen. And so we're listening to all this explanation. And Catherine says, okay, I want to say something. And everybody's like, oh, she speaks. And Catherine said something very interesting. Catherine said to this elder's wife, Darlene, every pastor worth his salt is supposed to be influencing us. The question is not whether or not our pastor is supposed to influence us. Of course he is. The question is, is he influencing us to follow Jesus Or is he influencing us to follow the world? Is he influencing us in biblical thought patterns or worldly thought patterns? Catherine was basically saying rhetoric in and of itself isn't bad. It's what the rhetoric is trying to persuade us to follow that we should be looking at. Why are we employing rhetoric? And that really opened up everybody's eyes that day to to come to the realization that rhetoric in and of itself was not a bad thing. Amen? I mean, we engage in rhetoric all the time. One of the current things that we're doing is a, is a baby bottle boomerang for the ABC Pregnancy Center. And, and we're giving money. We're filling up these bottles with change and we're going to turn them back in and we're going to give that to ABC Pregnancy Center so that they can employ rhetoric and, and influence people to make choices to not abort babies. And so that's a good thing. Amen? I mean, rhetoric in that capacity is a, is a good thing. Now, I could sit up here and come up with a bunch of bad examples of rhetoric, but I'm not going to do that. Because I want to show you good examples of rhetoric. Where we use it for the positive. You know, where we use it. Well, for many of us in our congregation are either hunters or the benef- or, or we benefit from those who are hunters. Amen? I mean, pretty much everybody here, most everybody here likes game, right? And so we are we benefit from the rhetoric that happens with the NRA and other groups that want to keep our, our ability to keep and bear arms and to be able to hunt and protect ourselves and all those things. We benefit from that rhetoric. Amen? So rhetoric in and of itself is not a bad thing. And we need to grab a hold of that. Right? So the particular device the author of Hebrews uses in rhetoric is what I would label. I'm not sure what the official label is. But that is affirmation before the fact. The author uses the rhetoric, the, the device of rhetoric of affirmation before the fact. 
Okay, that's what the author's using here. So what does affirmation before the fact look like? Well, in verse 9, the author affirms the audience of the book of Hebrews in doing the right thing before they ever do it, right? Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust. So he's telling them, hey, look, I feel good about you. I feel like you're going to walk this out, like you're going to do the things that belong to salvation. This is the surety that I have in you. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in his writings, uses this device all the time as well. Some of you say, didn't Paul write Hebrews? We don't know who wrote Hebrews. There's some people who believe that he did. Some people believe he didn't. We can't nail that down for sure. But Paul uses this device all the time. He talks about, I know when I come to you, I'm sure of this. And he's giving them affirmation before the fact. He's kind of telling them what he wants them to do. But he's doing it in an affirming way before it happens. Like affirmation after the fact would be coming to uh, Mark and saying to Mark, Hey Mark, that was a great job leading worship today. Thanks buddy. That's affirmation after the fact. Affirmation before the fact is saying, hey, Mark, I'm sure you're going to do this great today. I'm sure you're going to lead us before the throne. I'm sure that we're going to experience the presence of God. See, I've named off some things that I want to see happen in worship. And I've affirmed Mark's ability to do that before the fact. And so what does Mark do at that point when he's affirmed like that? He walks with confidence, doesn't he? Amen. Walks with his head held high. He says, okay, my pastor believes in me. And this is what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's giving confirm, or affirmation before the fact. Now, this type of affirmation does not mean the person employing it is actually 100% certain the audience will comply. Rather, it's used as a means to persuade. Okay? When I say to, when I say to Mark, well, Mark, I'm sure that you can do it today and I appreciate your, your willingness to serve and I know that, man, the Holy Spirit's just gonna come in power today because you're gonna be attentive to His Spirit. Now, I don't know for sure that Mark's gonna do that. I'm trying to persuade Mark to be attentive because for all I know, you know, Mark wrecked his car on the way to service this morning and, man, he's, he's really having a hard time focusing even on the Lord, let alone being attentive to make sure the Spirit of God has liberty to move. So, I mean, things can happen that can mess it up, but it's really, what it really is, is coming at something with a positive outlook rather than a negative outlook. It's coming to, it's coming with a positive thought process rather than a negative thought process. The difference between this type of positive reinforcement and the regular type of reinforcement, as I pointed out already, is that this comes before it happens instead of after it happens. I want to give some other examples of, of how this can happen before I move on, and then we'll move on. And I'm just really reiterating this. I know I'm giving a lot of examples because this is something I want to see us begin to do as a body, is affirming each other before the fact. I believe that's something the Lord wants us to do, is to have faith with one another and spur one another on to good deeds and righteousness. So here's another example of how this could work, right? A coach affirming a player's ability to score the winning po- score the winning point before the play ever happens. Right? Like, we sometimes put in Jay Hay as a pinch hitter, and we affirm him. We're like, Jay Hay, we know you can do this. For those of you who don't know who Jay Hay is, you need to start watching some Pirates games. Amen. But, or, or maybe we put in a kicker. 
to score a field goal. We're down, you know, we're down by a couple of points and hey, a field goal will put us up and we put in the kicker. We say rather than trying to, to go for it, we're going to put in the kicker. We affirm him before he goes in. And so this person goes in with confidence. It's not like the, oh man, what are we going to do? Oh, I guess, I guess we, we don't really have any other choice. I mean, the pitcher's up to bat. I guess we got to pinch hit Harrison. You know, he's going to hope he can do it. No, it's not like that at all. Right, it's this affirmation before the fact that the person walks out with confidence. Does it work every time? If you're watching baseball this year, you know it's not working every time. <laughs> so, but, uh, but you know, but we still have this confirmation or affirmation of the person before the fact. Another way that it could happen. A boss affirming someone in a tough job situation, right? Like, go to this person and, and there's this tough account that we've been trying to land. You know, and nobody's been able to land it. And we just, as a, as a firm, we just keep hitting a brick wall with it. We keep hitting a brick wall with it. We keep hitting a brick wall, right? And we're like, man, we can't make any headway with this at all. And so the boss comes and he says, Brian, man, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have you go after this, this, this big account over here at, uh, Giuseppe's. And, uh, we want you to get the advertising account for that. And we know that, that, that nobody's been able to land it because, you know, Scott's a tough customer. But I know that you can do it. I have confidence in you. You have a, you have a great personality. You've got winning ways and all these things. And we know you're going to be able to do this. And so you just tell me what we need to do to support you. And all of a sudden, Brian is affirmed. And as he goes to sell a advertising to Giuseppe's and, and everything's good. I mean, he walks out. Does he land the account? Maybe, maybe not. But he walks out with an attitude that he can do it. Amen. He walks out with an attitude of, he can do it. Another way is a pastor affirming a new Sunday school teacher on the things they need to do for a children's class. It's kind of funny. Everybody wants to teach kids because they think kids are easier. Because huh? kids, they are not afraid to ask you anything. One time, my, my wife got asked this crazy question. Well, not crazy comment was made. She had to, right in the middle of children's church, she's teaching and she's trying to teach the kids on, uh, on Noah's Ark. And she's, she's going through the whole thing. And this kid interrupts the class. And you try getting back on track after this. Interrupts the class. And Sarah's, Sarah's going through and the kids are talking about what it might be like on Noah's Ark. And one of the kids says, oh, I bet it stank. And, uh, and the one little kid interrupts the class and goes, oh, my dad's mouth probably stunk like Noah's Ark this morning when he got up to kiss me. <laughs> you know. Try getting back on track after that, right? So those of you who think children's ministry is easy, whoo, right? So it's not easy at all. But anyhow, but going and affirming the person, hey, I know that you've got it in you to do this. I know that you're worried that, that you're not going to have all the answers. And it's okay to say, I don't know. I know that God is using you. I, I have full confidence in you. And we want to empower you and encourage you to go on. This is affirmation before the fact. This is affirmation where the person walks in feeling, if they're receiving it, walks in feeling like, all right, I got this. I can do this, right? They walk in saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can I get a witness? Okay, so this is affirmation before the fact. The author of Hebrews first paints a picture of all the bad things that could happen. Then he lists the reader up by assuring them that only good will come. The first six chapters of Hebrew of Hebrews was not affirmation before the fact. Right? If you went and read the homework last last week, you walked away with like, wow, 
This is a lot of warnings. Right? There's a lot of warnings here to not forget God. There's a lot of warnings here to not fall away. There's a lot of warnings here to make sure that we can enter the faith or enter into God's rest. There's all of these warnings here. But I told you, we're in the part of the book that's making a transition. We're in the part of the book that's making a transition. And some, some theologians and scholars would say where this transition is going to happen here in chapter 6 and then it's going to be kind of the same teaching theme all the way through chapter 10. So there's this transition that's being made here. So, here's all these warnings in the first six chapters, but then the author of Hebrews is like this, Hey guys, I know I just gave you all these warnings, but I'm sure nothing bad like that's going to happen to you. Here's all of these warnings about falling away. Here's all of these things, and I want to I give you the warnings. But hey, of you, I'm confident of better things. I'm confident of better things. And, and that's why I appreciate for this go-around of preaching through the book of Hebrews, this section of the book so much. Because you preach the first six chapters of Hebrews to a church that's really pursuing Jesus and wanting to serve Him and wanting to love Him and wanting to transform the community, and you got to get up here and talk about all these warnings. And here's the moment of truth where I get to look and say, but hey, with you guys, I'm pretty confident of better things. I'm pretty confident that these warnings are all for naught. I'm pretty confident that we're going to walk through this and see victory. Amen? So, why does this work? Why does what the author of Hebrews has done in the first six chapters of Hebrews work? That's the question that I want to wrestle with. I don't know, maybe that's not the question you want to know, but I want to wrestle with it. Well, the first thing is that the warnings of bad things, it grabs our attention. It might even make us a little nervous. Right? When I see all the warnings about falling away from the faith, when I see all the things about not entering into his rest, when I see all these warnings that it's impossible for somebody who's tasted the goodness of the word of God and, and the Holy Spirit, and then impossible for them to be restored again if they fall away, man, okay, the warnings that probably make me a little nervous, right? And so, you know, at that moment, I'm thinking, oh man, really? This is what God's doing in my life? Right? But then the affirmation comes and instills confidence in the reader that the warning is not a personal rebuke, but rather it's simply what it is. A warning. Like I think it works because I'm like, I'm seeing the warning, but then I see that God says, but you know what? I have confidence in you. I'm going to say it another way. And this might stretch some of you a little bit. This might really stretch you. It helps the reader to see that while the danger is real, God believes in you. Now, I'm not talking about the sense of God believes in you and a lot of these false teachings that are going around that you can do anything that you put your mind to and, you know, that you're the center of everything. No, no, I'm not talking about having confidence in you like that. But, I, but I'm saying that God believes in your partnership in the gospel. This, this is better than a simple instructional statement that makes the reader feel like they don't have a clue how to follow Jesus, right? This, this is a better way of doing it than me telling Dylan specifically every little thing that he has to do to mow the grass. That was important for Dylan at one point, but as I tell him all of that stuff, what's Dylan worried about? All the do's and don'ts. He's worried about all the rules. He's worried about trying to make sure he remembers everything that I said. 
And he's overwhelmed with those little details. So it's better than that. I guess I'm just saying that asking a reader to recall all the do's and don'ts of the faithful, it's just not helpful. I mean, when you really boil it down here, what the reader or what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, hey, I am sure that you're going to continue to love God and love people. And that sums up all the do's and don'ts according to Jesus. Because they remember when they asked Jesus this, they said, Jesus, or teacher, what's, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your being. And the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On this, the entire law and prophets hangs. The crux of the, the, crux of the message is, is to love God with everything you have and to love people. Interesting enough, two do's, really no don'ts. That's a sermon for another day. I think if we focus on doing the do's, we don't have time to do the don'ts. Right? If we're focused on loving people and loving God, I don't have time for all the silliness. But anyway, it, it's, it's better than this whole remembering the rules, right? Instead, the, the author is saying, hey, I trust that you're doing just fine and, and that you're going to remember everything that you need to remember. It's better than, than asking somebody questions. And, and questions are good, and I do a lot of coaching. And I ask a lot of questions of people to try to get them to think through things. But, but it takes a lot of the pressure off because when I'm in the midst of trying to figure it out, I mean, let me just be honest with you. Now, I understand the heart of WWJD, right? It's, it, you know, what would Jesus do? But, you know, the reality is when I'm in the middle of something, I don't usually slow down to go, well, what, what would Jesus do, right? A lot of times my decision has to be spur of the moment, right? And so I don't really have time to slow down for these things and to think, and, and a lot of times I miss what God's doing. And so I think it's better than, than asking all these questions. It's telling people to go out with this confidence. Here's why. You know it's a trick question. What I'm getting ready to ask. You know it's a trick question. If you are born again and are a sinner, raise your hand. It's a trick question. Put them down. No, you're not. No, you're not. If you're born again, you're not a sinner. That isn't what the scripture calls you. It says you are a saint not by deeds yeah i know you've sinned i i know you've rebelled against god so have i but god doesn't look at you and say well there's brian my big screw up and and steve he's gonna go out and wreck it today no he says of you the same thing he says of job have you considered my most faithful and upright servant look at the things that this person is going to go do today devil see god looks at you with faith and with confidence not not in your own abilities, but the faith and confidence that as you're surrendered to Him, you're going to do awesome things for Him. That you're going to serve Him. And some of you I know are struggling with this concept, but listen to me. One of two things is true here. Okay, Either A, you are a saint, like I've said, or B, the Catholics are right, we need to canonize saints. One or the other. One of two things. Let's go back to the passage of Scripture. It's right in this passage of Scripture. 
Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Serving the who? Come on, church, serving the who? So he's either talking about the people that have gone on before us and are canonized. Or he's talking about the people who are around us, loving our brothers, loving those who are in Christ Jesus and serving them out of a pure, sincere devotion to God and a love for them. See, God is not looking at you saying, you're such a loser. He's looking at you and saying, man, I believe in you. Now, he doesn't believe in us apart from Jesus. Apart from Jesus, he says, you're wrecked, you're through. Right? If we could do it apart from Jesus, then Jesus came for no reason. But when we're born again and God's Spirit comes in, He changes us around. This is what I'm trying to say to you. You are a saint in the kingdom of God and you should be walking with your head held high. Saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can have victory. Amen? How many of you are walking through every day believing that the stuff that you're going to encounter, that you're going to be more than a conqueror. Are you really believing that? Anybody? I mean, doesn't the Scripture say that? That you're more than a conqueror. Amen? If God is for you, who can be against us? Amen? Come on, church. We we, we just came out of six chapters of skint up knees and, and bloody elbows because of what God was warning us about. And we're transitioning into this part of the book that's a lot better. That says, hey, even though this warning's here, I believe in you. I want you to turn and look at your neighbor. Turn and look at your neighbor. Tell your neighbor, neighbor, God believes in you. He's invited you to be a partner. Now, turn and look the other way at your other neighbor on your other side. Tell him again, neighbor, God believes in you. He's invited you to be a partner in the gospel. I know this sounds crazy, guys. I know it sounds crazy. And I know there's a lot of us that struggle with this thought process. They're like, really? God believes in us? Hey, I don't want you to take my word for it. I'm going to give you homework here in just a minute. I'll let you go ahead and start copying it down. Right? This is six passages of Scripture where God says that by the empowerment of His Spirit, He believes that you could do great things in the kingdom of God. Listen to me. God believes that we can transform the oil region for His glory and His honor. Like one person sitting right here, I think it was Stacy, believes that. Right? That should invoke excitement in you. God believes that OCCA can change the oil region. He believes that all of these drug problems that are in our area can be conquered. He believes that you of all people can do it. He believes in your partnership in the gospel. Amen? I mean, He doesn't need us. He's God. He wants us in this partnership. Can I get an amen? You should be excited about what Jesus is doing in your life and in your church. He wants to use you to transform your neighbors. He wants... Dad... He wants to use you to bring your kids into the kingdom. Mom, He wants to use you to push back 
the darkness. Teenager, he wants to use you to stand against the worldliness that's going on. I mean, this is an exciting message. I mean, this is one of those things, man. We should walk out of here today and we should feel like, wow, man, God is going to use us in a mighty way. But so many churches aren't doing that. So many churches aren't experiencing that confidence. And sometimes, quite frankly, on my bad days, I don't experience that confidence. Sometimes I'm like, wow, we're going to get whooped today. But then I'm reminded that God believes in us. Some of these passages of Scripture, of the homework, Monday, John 14, 8 through 14. Tuesday, Mark 16, 14 through 20. Wednesday, John 15, 1 through 17. Thursday, Acts 1, 1 through 8. Friday, Matthew 16, 30 through 20, 13 through 20. And Saturday, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Some of these passages say crazy things like this. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you see all this crazy stuff I've done? You're going to do it and even more. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? One of these places, I think I put it in this week's homework, maybe I didn't. He looks at Peter and he he says, you know, who do you say I'm Peter? And and Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for for man didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. He said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm going to use you to build my kingdom. And it doesn't matter, hell can't stop it. Amen? Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, ends with these words. And you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. God is saying that in our divine partnership that we have with Him by His empowerment that we can transform. Now you're going to read in the John 15 passage that apart from Him we can do nothing. And that's true. But when we abide in Christ, when we rest in the loving arms of our Father in Heaven, we are more than conquerors. Guys, I have read the end of the Bible I've turned to the last chapters of Revelation. We win. I don't think you understand. I read the last two chapters. I cheated and skipped to the end of the book. We win. Now, church, I don't think you get it. We win. Who wins? Who wins? We win. We're victorious. Of this one, though, is a little bit different, the affirmation before the fact. This is a guarantee. And I don't have to back it up. God does. This is one affirmation before the fact that is true. Guaranteed 100% of the time. Church, we need to start affirming one another before the fact We need to start believing in one another that God is raising someone up and raising people up in our midst and not look at all of the junk that's necessarily going on in each other's life and going, well, you stink and you can't serve because of this and this and this and say, you know what? I trust that God is doing a work inside of your life and He's transforming you as He's transforming me. 
Because in the end, we win. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we believe you that in the end, we win. And yet we also confess to you that sometimes we struggle with believing this. Lord, we thank you. Lord, I thank you that we've gotten through the majority of the first six chapters of the book of Hebrews and the skinning up for the time being is over. And we're into the encouraging part. And we're into getting ready to talk about Melchizedek, who is the king of peace, the king of, 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 of kings, the Lord of lords. And, and we're getting ready to get into this exciting stuff about Jesus. And Father, we thank you that you love us enough and believe in us enough to let us be partners in the gospel. Lord, help us not to take this message the wrong way and, and go off in arrogance and, and, and self-dependence. But Lord, help us to serve you wholeheartedly in everything we do. And God's people said, amen.